0: Because of the holidays And uh, I hope wherever you are uh, You're doing well And uh, happy Saturnalia Solstice, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, Christmas And all the rest, Um, I probably forgot something in there, (laughs) Uh, but uh, you get my meaning, I'm sure. Um, I hope uh, wherever you are, you are warm and cozy and you're you're not uh, fighting the roads trying to get to where you have to be. Uh, I like to imagine you sitting by a a cozy fire with a hot drink, uh, just sitting back and uh, enjoying the show. Uh, Myself, uh, earlier today, we sort of started our uh, holiday tradition off uh, with um, this movie we like to watch, uh, Home for the Holidays, uh, with Holly Hunter. And uh, it's just this wonderful story of this dysfunctional family. And, uh, you know, it always made me feel so good because my family was so dysfunctional. You know, instead of those Norman Rockwell Mm -hmm. prints where everyone uh, else looks like uh, they have the perfect family. No, I had the home for the holidays uh, type of family, as I'm sure many of you do, too. It just always gives me a chuckle and makes me feel good. So it's an oldie but a goodie. You know, you might want to look it up uh, And uh, make it part of your uh, Christmas or holiday tradition Too So, uh, getting to uh, Tonight's show uh, I'm so happy to have returning uh, uh, Laura Perry Uh, She has been on the show before And uh, we like to talk about uh, Modern Minoan paganism And uh, the relevance uh, Of modern Minoan paganism For a better world And, um I'll tell you a little bit about Laura If this is perhaps the first time You're hearing her as one of my guests uh, She is an artist A writer uh, and the founder And facilitator of modern Minoan Paganism uh, The Minoans of Bronze Age Crete Have been a passion of hers since A fateful art history class Introduced her to the frescoes of Knossos, and she realized uh, That women's position in society Hasn't always been the way it is now If she's not busy drawing Writing or leading rituals and workshops You can probably find her in the garden Or giving a living history Demonstration at a local Historic site And um, I'm sure you're going to want Her website uh, after you hear her It's LauraPerryAuthor.com And it's Laura L-A-U-R-A PerryAuthor.com So uh, Laura Welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine
1: Hi thanks It's great to be here again
0: Well, um, you know, we always have such a great time talking about the Minoans. Um, I know some people think, uh, you know, there's just a slight chance that uh, they may have inspired the Atlantis stories. I know I asked you that before, uh, but uh, forgive me, I forgot the answer. So I hate to throw you a curveball there, but um, your thoughts?
1: (laughs) Okay, so um, it's possible that the Minoans did inspire part of the Atlantis story. Um, the historians, when, uh, when we first rediscovered the Minoans about a century ago, uh, people thought that the uh, gigantic supervolcano eruption of the island of Thera, which is modern Santorini in the Mediterranean, destroyed Minoan civilization. That's what people thought. Destroyed it. This enormous cataclysm that infect, that affected the entire eastern half of the Mediterranean basin, and so it made perfect sense um, for Crete and the ancient Minoans to have been Atlantis, right? Because they were this shining, peaceful, beautiful civilization in uh, in the middle of the sea that was utterly destroyed. Um, A few decades on, people figured out that that eruption did not actually destroy Crete. Um, The the archaeologists dug down through all the layers and, and, you know, calculated and counted up, and they figured out that um, it was it was a horrible disaster. Um, There was the supervolcano eruption that literally blew the island to smithereens. The island of Thera, not Crete. Um, and there was a tsunami that uh, really ravaged the north and east coasts of Crete as well as other parts of the Mediterranean. There was an ash cloud that probably um, created something like volcanic winter for two years. Um, But the Minoans and the other people around the Mediterranean, um, they recovered from that they uh and the Minoans Minoan civilization continued for another 2 centuries after that and sadly it turns out that what actually destroyed the Minoans was human beings not nature um, it uh it looks like the uh the Mycenaeans who were trying to take over the island because it was wealthy and you know i could understand uh a conquest driven culture wanting that um, it looks like they actually um, destroyed the majority of the cities on the island. Um, the final destruction layer is not from a natural disaster, but from systematic looting and burning by other human beings. So, um, What a, sh- yeah. so what that's, a shame. That's
0: the and and, they're, yeah. and they're, the, they're the ones that went after Troy, too, I believe, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, when you when you have that conquest-driven, um, the the sort of need for more and more and more uh, built into your culture and your society, um, there's no way to stop. Yeah, and so Sounds yeah, familiar. you do have I don't
0: to. Yeah, have, things haven't changed <laughs> so much. <laughs> um, you, you have well, to rewrite I, the well, the mythos, some... you know true uh well and, and some of my guests have actually been talking about that you know the importance that we rewrite our stories um yes. uh, felicity flowers was on recently and uh well i mean and i gave talks about that at the council for the parliament of world religions as well but it's so important to rewrite our stories so that we um you know have different values and different uh Uh, traditions and um, you know we hold dear different things other than domination exploitation, patriarchy conquest, uh, greed you know all the things that are um, you know not not uh not doing us any good even still today, but um one other th- one last thing I want to mention to you, just in case you haven't seen it, and then then we'll delve deep deeper uh into modern Minoan paganism and the relevance. I saw just recently uh a special documentary where where they are talking about a different volcanic eruption in the Mediterranean Sea that um they believe affected Crete. Um, and, you know, they're still saying volcanic eruption was the demise, but not Thera. Now it's this other one, uh, the name I can't remember because I'd never heard it before, but uh, that was the first I'd ever heard this, and apparently there's there was this widespread re- research across um, Continents where they were trying to see how far the ash went, and it went—you know—it was far, far north as Siberia, down into Egypt. Uh, I mean, it just—I uh, mean, it—it—it it, it, it was an immense eruption. Um, so I—I'll I, just throw that out there in case you hadn't seen that yet, because this was pretty new. I've only seen it a few weeks ago. At least I think it was pretty new.
1: Are, are you sure it's not the Thera eruption? Because that's the only um, supervolcano, size volcano in the Mediterranean. Um, and they have indeed found um, ashfall over uh, multiple thousands of miles diameter um, from, from the Thera eruption. Sometimes it's referred to as Santorini because that's the modern name of the island within, right. it currently belongs to the nation of Greece. Um
0: right, right there are I w I I I've. I've been there. Huh. You know, I've been to Santorini right. um in Thera. Right. Uh, th- this was a- this was actually another um uh, a vol- volcano that was under the water. Uh, well, it's under the water now, uh but I but I don't think it was under the water then. Now that part I might be getting wrong, but um I'll have to try to find it again and I'll send you Okay, an email. yeah. Um, would be I you know, I to see that yeah i mean i there is i could be wrong but i think i'm remembering correctly because i thought to myself wow i didn't even know this existed and and as i was watching it i was making the distinction in my mind that this was not thera you know so this this was Interesting. Um, okay. you know this yeah, this other volcano that uh, just, you know, it, it really kind of took me by surprise. But anyway, huh. you know, we were going to talk uh, more about modern Minoan paganism. So why don't we start by you explaining to listeners how modern Minoan paganism is different from other Minoan-focused pagan traditions?
1: Um, well, we uh, we are a revivalist tradition. Um which means that we are a group of modern pagans who connect with the gods and goddesses of ancient Crete in the modern world. Um, We're not trying to reconstruct uh, what the ancient Minoans did. We are trying to take what we know about what they did with their religion and their culture and adapt that in ways that are um, relevant for not just for modern pagans, but relevant for the values that we want to spread in the modern world. Um, We are a welcoming tradition, and I like to actually read this uh, when I give workshops because I always manage to miss something. Um, But here's here's our statement. We are a welcoming tradition, happily open to people of any race, ethnicity, gender, or gender identity, Sexual orientation, age, ability level, disability, geographic location, language, education, or socioeconomic status. So, um, that's, that's, everybody. <laughs> that's
0: everybody. That's uh, everybody, or in, and anyone with uh, uh, you know with an interest. Um, so, uh, how do you structure your tradition? Is it something like you know what we would see in Wicca, you know, covens, or something like that? Well, we actually
1: started um, online. I was looking for other people who had a similar interest in the Minoan deities um, and and those values, the values of, of that culture and religion. And so we began um, with a Facebook group, which is actually still our official public, public forum. Um, and eventually we started um gathering together enough people that some people in local areas started getting together and doing things. And um, last year we had uh, a group out in the Seattle area um, do our first official public ritual at a park out there and they wanted to be uh, an official they wanted to be more official than just a member of the Facebook group. And so we put together uh, bylaws and uh, sort of a formal organization. So we're not really coven we're, we're not really coven-based in that sense. We are mostly solitary members. The, there is formal membership if, if people want that. But we do also have chapters, which are kind of like Covens. Um, and that's, those are local groups um, that get together several times a year. Um, to to do stuff, to do rituals, uh, to share uh, conversation, um, and so I, I guess in that sense, that part of it is coven based or something like coven based. But um, the majority of our members are solitary at this point because we're just we're scattered all over the world. That's the way you know modern paganism works now.
0: Right, 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 and um, well, well, I'm curious because um, I mean we did something similar. Uh, I think I've told you before with uh, the ISIS group. Uh, my husband and I uh-huh. started. We were trying to make, you know, we we would cherry pick from the past and and make the rituals relevant. And um, but you know, being you know there was that there, there's so much written about ISIS in Egypt. You know, it was a lot easier. Um, how do you manage to, uh, you know? to um i mean is there a book or guidelines i mean how do you say okay this is a what distinguishes a minoan ritual i guess that that's my um question other than maybe you are making um uh you know prayers or offerings to a minoan deity i mean is there something specific that um Uh, you know, that that you guys do, or would it look like any other pagan ritual where, like, you call in the corners and stuff? Does that make sense, that question? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, so let me go back and answer your first question. Uh, Yes, there is a book. (laughs) Um, We started out, uh, the members of the group, working uh, collaboratively. I tried to create... I, I don't call myself, you know, the high priestess or something like that. I'm the facilitator. It's my job... To, um, to help our tradition grow in a collective sense, in a way that everyone um, can participate as, as they feel comfortable doing. And so this has been a collective effort. Um, we, uh, and so we, we've developed a set of practices that we all share in common. And at some point, someone said, could you please write this down? Um, so that you know so that we can have it for a reference, so there is a book it's called Labyrinth and Horns. Um, and uh it describes uh what we do, um, which is very typical it's not this is not Wiccan based um the the ancient Minoans um came before the time of the ceremonial magic that gives us things like casting a circle and calling the quarters. And so we're trying to be as, um, as appropriate to ancient Minoan religion as we can. So our, our rituals don't involve uh, casting a circle and calling the quarters, but um, our members do have altars um, we make offerings. Um, we are quite fond of processions to begin rituals with. And when we bring the deities in, their presence consecrates the ritual space. Um, and so that's, I think most modern pagans would, uh, would find what we do very familiar. So it's not yeah, it's anything not- terribly, terribly off the beaten path
0: no so- it sounds like it 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 uh sounds like it so um why do you think uh people might be attracted to this Minoan focus for their spiritual life
1: um, The main reason that people uh tend to uh meander in our direction is that the Minoans um offer a set of cultural values that a lot of people find very attractive and that's reflected in their religion and that and it's then reflected in the way we practice modern Minoan paganism um, the Minoans. Um, let me preface this with they were not a utopia a lot of people like to um, like to paint them as some kind of golden age perfect society they were human beings um, they had their flaws, they had their problems, but their culture uh, encompassed a set of values that are very attractive and that I think speak to something in the core of many people about um, about our own sacredness and our sacredness in relation to each other and the divine. Um, women had what? what uh, anthropologists like to call, quote, very high status, unquote, in ancient uh, Crete. Very high status translates as they were equal. Um, As far as anyone can tell from, uh, from the artifacts, from the way it looks like they practiced their religion, from the art, women appear to have had equal status with men in Minoan society and goddesses appear to have had at least equal status with gods in the mythos, and I guess in a certain sense that's a really radical kind of um, kind of concept because most of the time when we learn about ancient history, we learn about ancient Greece and Rome, you know, where women were better seen and not heard kind of thing, and where men were the ones with status. Um, so yeah there's it appeals to both men and women people who feel like we're all just human beings we're all in this together and who want a um a spiritual practice that actively reflect reflects those values
0: so would you say um well, I mean, that, that all makes sense to me uh, because it, it's a situation where you can reconcile your spirituality and politics, so to, so to speak, you know, um, right. and, and it can help you kind of kind of navigate the social and ethical issues of today's world, staying true to your religion as well as maybe your, uh, your morality, if you will, your, your secular uh, beliefs or value system.
2: Right, right,
0: or well, I mean, yeah yeah
1: yeah 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 it's it's awfully hard to follow any spiritual practice that doesn't mesh completely with your ethics, and I'm sure most people have have um dealt with that conflict uh, at one time or another, it really it really all has to sit together very firmly um if you're gonna if you're gonna be a strong person, especially given the world that we have to deal with
2: today.
0: Yeah. Well, it it makes me think, I mean, you know, myself, um, uh, recovering Catholic, uh, and I know you know Catholics are you know kind of hold a weird place in Christianity, but um, you know I'm I'm relating to what you're saying because for so long, uh, I mean some of these things have changed, and some listeners might even be surprised to learn this. But you know uh, you know it it, it 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 was difficult to get a divorce. Uh, birth control right. was not a thing a thing that was approved. We're still having the abortion fights. You know, um, so it's, uh, it, it's hard for women to be a fully functioning human when she uh, doesn't even have control over her own body because of religion. Um, so Why? that, you know, that just sta- stands hmm. out to me uh, as a big red flag um, that, you know, a woman who was practicing this modern Minoan paganism would not run into such conflicts. Uh, between religion and, um, you know, maybe her feminism, uh, perhaps. Right,
1: right. Well, um, over the years, an awful lot of groups, uh, both sacred and secular, have sort of taken up the Minoans as their, I hesitate to say battle flag, but like as their mascot. Um, as a way to say to the world, look, this is possible. You know, the the values and the the culture that we envision is possible. We know that because it already happened once, at least once. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's 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 a way to um, it's a way to kind of try to make those values tangible again.
0: Yeah, uh because I mean it's um it, it, we we go through, you know, our our education and uh you know the the way things are taught today Uh, You would think that uh, there was only always just been a patriarchy, but we find out through, uh, you know, like the Minoans that there were egalitarian societies or uh, Miriam Robbins Dexter uh, has started calling them equalitarian because I think maybe it's easier for people to get, get the gist. Um, right. So the Minoans kind of stand out there as a shining beacon. That yes, yes, you know it hasn't always been this way, right?
1: Right, and that's what makes some people very uncomfortable, because if if we have um, if we have the myth, and I mean that in the derogatory sense of the term, if we have the myth that the way it is now is the only way that it's ever been. Then that's an excuse for not trying to change it. But if if we have an example to hold up to say, look, this isn't the way it has always been. We have an example right here of a culture that was extraordinarily successful um, for centuries. Right? Um, the people uh, the people who um, colonized Crete. Uh, came there in maybe 8000 BCE or so and um, they expanded and evolved into what we call the Minoan culture and that didn't um, didn't fall until about the year 1500 BCE so we're talking many centuries of an extraordinarily successful wealthy and by all accounts peaceful culture And holding that up as a mirror can be really um, uncomfortable for a lot of people because if you have that as an example, then you have no excuse to not try.
0: Well, sort of in a way like the, uh, the Eleusinian Mysteries, too, of Demeter and Persephone, you know, uh, they mm-hmm. wanna act like uh, you know, patriarchal religion, you know, the male god is dominated <clears throat> forever, uh, when the Eleusinian mysteries were around for two thousand years. But uh, you know, it's it's just more convenient to kinda of toss that uh you know, the toss that baby in the bathwater out as well.
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: But I mean So I, I, um Yeah. No, go ahead. That it's. it's um, I think it has always been sort of the human impulse to try to paint whatever culture we're in as the only way it's ever been, um, just as a matter of security. And so, if we can step back and recognize that, it's not like that's something. It's not like that's something horrible that we're doing. It's something human that we're doing, and let's recognize that we're doing it so that we can then step past it and see what's really there.
0: Right. Okay. Well, we're going to take a little break, um, uh, but when we come back, um, I want to talk more about who the gods and goddesses of the Minoans were. And, um, I, and, uh, find out if you know anything about those, um, those murals in Knossos, the feather prints, and maybe some, uh, talk a little bit about the bull jumping and, uh, and, and you know, just, just more about stuff, maybe the Phaistos disc to find out if there's been any, uh, new developments there in terms of deciphering it. Uh, but first, um, I want to share this uh, uh, a word from our guest here, Laura Perry.
2: The Minoans of Ancient Crete, an egalitarian society where women were honored, where the sacred feminine was revered, where peace and prosperity reigned for centuries. Hi, I'm Laura Perry, and I'd love to help bring the ancient Minoans to life for you. Explore Minoan spirituality with my books, Labyrinth and Horns and Ariadne's Thread Embrace your creative side with the Minoan Coloring Book and discover the wonders of divination with the Minoan Tarot You'll find all these at Amazon and other good online and local bookstores Find out more on my website lauraperryauthor.com
0: So does it feel funny to hear your own commercial while you're a guest on the show? <laughs> yes, it does. Yes it does.
1: Well I mean and my voice always sounds weird to me when I hear it recorded anyway, so yeah. I was kind of it strange. doesn't. It
0: it it really doesn't. We're just we're just hard on ourselves. <laughs> is um, so, um, so I do want to get to that other stuff I mentioned before we, uh, you know, took that little break. But um, how are the members of your modern Minoan paganism group, you know, uh, like you said, around the world, um, are they doing something in particular to maybe try to bring the values of, you know, the, the egalitarian society, um, you know, forward in the modern world?
1: Well, besides, I guess, the practice um of, of our tradition um, one, of the, one of the things that we did when we were forming the official part of it and writing the bylaws um, was we wanted to be an example of a good way to be forward thinking about um, spiritual groups so our bylaws have not just that welcoming statement um, that, I, that I read to you a little while ago but also um, some, um, some very specific wording about um, how it's okay or not okay to be um, a member, like how, how we have to treat each other, um, things like uh, racism and sexism and um, all the various isms that, that uh, we have unfortunately piled up in our culture. Um, we have to take a proactive stance and say, look, these things are not acceptable. Um, and I'm hoping that doing that will, um, we're, not, we're not by any chance the only tradition um, that has set up official policies like that, but there aren't as many as you would expect. And I'm hoping that that, um, that sets a good example. Um, for all kinds of organizations to work toward being um, respectful of everyone in the group. Um, we, we have a certain number of, uh, of members who are fairly, um, fairly big activists of various sorts, but um, as a tradition, we have decided not to take uh, any stance on that kind of thing because we are um we're we're still not a very big group um but yeah essentially what we've done is uh, make a public declaration of our values um, and how we expect um, women to be treated as equals uh, how we expect all people to be treated the way they would have in ancient crete which was an equalitarian and cosmopolitan culture um yeah, and I'm hoping that that propagates out uh, into the world. Like the more people who set that kind of example, the more it reverberates through the culture and helps rewrite those stories.
0: Yeah, and it, and it's like a pebble in in the pond. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I think people are walking uh, walking away from mainstream religion today in droves because of of the hypocrisy. You know, we're becoming more evolved as humans. Uh, you know, we can't keep burying our head in the sand, you know, about pedophile priests and all the rest. Right. You know, uh, prosperity gospels that promote greed instead of, you know, what Jesus really taught and, um, you know, and all the rest. I mean, Carol Chris just had a wonderful uh, essay on the Feminism and Religion blog uh, that just came out, I want to say in the last week. I always talk about this blog because there's so much good stuff there. And, yeah. you know, anybody is well, welcome to post there. And she was talking about um, uh, how, um, I believe it's it's like in baptismal rituals. Uh, yeah. You know, the woman is just I read that totally... One. Uh, yeah, I I think she in the title it was something about matricide. Uh, because we don't yeah. realize how it's sorta of baked into the cake that, you know, the woman is uh irrelevant, you know, and right. uh and female values, you know. It it was a wonderful um but, you know, a, a wonderful essay, and again, you know, it is a perfect reminder of why these, you know, these established patriarchal religions, you know, people are not willing to accept that sort of stuff anymore. You know, they're looking yeah. at things, examining things, and saying, you know, this this isn't the values we want, um, you know, for our world. And, uh, and and you're doing the same thing with uh, this, uh, the, the modern Mino paganism.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're, and we're doing our best to be um, upfront and clear about everything because one of the things that pisses me off about any kind of institution, but especially religious institutions, is the lack of clarity, and it's on purpose so you can't pin them down about things. And so, you know, we decided right up front that clarity was the thing. You know, we're going to put it in no uncertain terms. These are the values. These are, you know, this is this is what we stand for. So, yeah.
0: Right. Well, and, you know, and I wish you well. I mean, you're making me think of the Fellowship of ISIS. Um, you know, Lady Olivia uh, Robinson and her brother and I think her sister-in-law uh, started the Fellowship of ISIS Uh, decades ago and they've both since passed and you know members are doing everything they can to keep it alive but I mean that started as far as I know as a small little thing in you know in their home in Ireland and decades later they have um, thousands and thousands of members across the globe and um, you know this what you're doing could be the start of something very similar well (laughs) <laughs> we'll see where it goes. Um,
1: yeah, the, it's uh, it's one yeah. of those things that I'm just I'm doing what I feel like needs to be done, um, and what happens from there is uh, you know we'll see where it goes. I'm just all right, those right. of us who are who are doing this we're just you know we're doing what we feel like we need to um, in the world the way it is today
0: yeah you're following your calling i mean uh and again you know there's so you know it's like uh, laura i I just feel like so much is coming together you know so many um threads of the tapestry or or being woven i mean i was just reading sharon blackie's book about if women rose rooted and part of it is about uh women you know and men you know following their passion you know of, you know, having the courage to be their authentic self, but doing it in a feminine way, not a patriarchal way, not a power over way, uh, not a corporate world way. And right. um, you know, your group is an, a, another example of that. You know, of, um, of of finding another way of doing and being in the world. I, I think it's I think it's uh, really notable. It's uh, I, I'm I'm so proud to know you. <laughs> I think this is oh. so great. Oh, thank
3: you. Wow.
0: <laughs> so um, so let's let's go to the gods and goddesses. You know, because that might be something listeners are a little confused about. I mean, I know when we were in Pnoseus, you know, you the the prevalent imagery is the goddess, uh, the snake goddess and I believe her sister that has the cat on her head. Uh, I think it's a cat. Uh, I'm happy to be corrected. Um, who were the gods and goddesses of the Minoans?
1: Okay. So the two goddesses that you're talking about are the two famous snake goddess figurines. Um, and we call her the serpent mother. Um, and, uh, no one's exactly sure where that cat came from, and it's possible that it doesn't, doesn't actually belong to that statue because it, the statue is largely reconstructed. Um, the, uh, the modern Minoan Pantheon, our, our whole uh, tradition has been built up by a combination. This is just my disclaimer so that people understand where we're coming from. Um, we've combined all the archeological evidence we can get our hands on, and we try to stay as up-to-date as possible on that. Um, with dance ethnography, a great deal of dance ethnography, folk dances and um, folk music and trance practices from the Mediterranean. Um, And then um, the the bits and pieces of Minoan myth that made their way into Greek mythology, um, which are purposely garbled by the Greeks um, in order to make them look good and in the process make the Minoans look bad. Um, we take all of those and we put them together. Um, and it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle where you don't have all the pieces and you don't know what the picture is supposed to look like. Um, so it's, it's very much a, uh, a process in which you have to trust yourself and you have to trust the divine to lead you. And um, we use shared gnosis to fill in the spaces and to make, the information to transform the information that we have into a practice that will work um, for pagans. So with that in mind, sorry, that was a very long disclaimer, but I just want to I just want to let people know where we're coming from. Um, so our pantheon is headed by a triplicity of goddesses. We call them the three mothers, and they represent the realms of land, sea, and sky. So we have um, the Minoan Earth Mother Mother Goddess, Rhea. And uh, she is a powerful enough being that she made her way all the way into the Greek pantheon. So she was not going to disappear. And so she is the land. She is the island of Crete itself. She is the Earth Mother, the Mountain Mother. And then we have Posidaea, whose name comes to us from the Linear B tablet um, that are these... um, clay tablets with uh, an ancient script on them that was used by the people on Crete and in parts of Greece to write down uh, Mycenaean Greek, which is the very earliest form of Greek that we really have any record of. So Posidaea is Grandmother Ocean. You'll notice that her name sounds a lot like Poseidon. Um, It's possible that the Greeks borrowed her and gave her a bit of a gender swap. Um, to develop their uh, their ocean god. And then the last of the three mothers is the Minoan sun goddess, Tarasia. And um, people are often surprised to hear that we have a sun goddess instead of a sun god. But um, the, uh, the research shows that the oldest layer of mythology across Eurasia has Uh, the sun as a goddess and not a god and uh, i'm going to put in a plug for an out-of-print book that i think everybody should go dig up at their favorite local uh, used bookstore it's called oh mother's son by patricia monahan and it's out of print but it's fairly easy to find and not too expensive and it is absolutely eye-opening about how the sun is a goddess, not a god, in the oldest layers of mythos across Eurasia. Wow.
0: I, I didn't. I didn't realize that. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, um, question. So you you said that the Greeks were trying to disparage the Minoans. Um, is that where we get that uh, that that myth where uh, they had to sacrifice their children to the bull? Um, yeah. You know, and, and okay, all right. So, now, so that whole, um, you know, it, 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 what is the bull part of the mythos, though?
1: Um, okay, so here's what we've been able to figure out. Now, bear in mind, I'm not saying that the Greeks were awful people. Okay, um, it is a common um, cultural activity for one culture to when, when they when one culture comes. Cu- Sorry, I'm getting all tongue-twisted here. When one culture conquers another, it is standard practice around the world and across time to have the conquering culture's deities take over against the conquered culture's deities, right? And so when cultures sort of change hands and change power, you see that in the mythos. It's reflected in... One, one uh, cohort of gods and goddesses uh, prevailing against another one, right? And so, so um, in Greek myth, you have Theseus, who is a Greek culture hero and who is not associated with um, the, the Minotaur story until actually fairly late um, in Greek history. Um, so Theseus. Um, goes to Crete to try to stop this horrendous practice that these barbaric Minoans are doing, right? Um, And he manages to get this girl, she's just a girl, right? Girl with a ball of string, Ariadne, to help him defeat this horrible monster, the Minotaur, in the labyrinth so that he can free all of these people. Um, So it turns out that Ariadne is not just a girl, she's a goddess. Right, But she was demoted from goddess to girl um, in order for the Greeks to rework the myth in their favor. And the Minotaur is not a monster. He is a Minoan god. And he stands at the center of the labyrinth not to eat you, but to help you face your shadow self and integrate those parts of you so you can become stronger. And King Minos isn't a mortal king. He's not a human at all. He's a god as well. So often, um, this this is uh, a kind of thing that happens often in mythology as cultures shift and change. Um, you get gods and goddesses demoted to humans or demoted to demigods or nymphs or something like that um, so that they are no longer a threat to the current power if that makes any sense Um, yeah and, and bear in mind also the um the greek myths. there's there's this huge time span it's real easy when you're thinking about the ancient world to kind of mash it all up into one great big ball that happened all at the same time and it didn't really um so the minoans the official dates for the flourishing, meaning the high part of Minoan culture, is from about 3,000 to 1,500 BCE. That's 1,500 years of high culture. And then there's the horrible destruction of all the Minoan cities around about 1,500, 1,400, somewhere along in there. And then there's what's called the Bronze Age Collapse, or the Greek Dark Ages. And that's a time of great chaos. We think there was climate change, drought. There may have been some more volcanic eruptions, Um, governments fall, cultures collapse. Um, The Mycenaeans, who had had a thriving culture before that, their culture falls apart during um, the Bronze Age collapse, and there's nothing for centuries. And then, several centuries later, what we think of as classical Greek culture grew up. Um, and so there's this gap in between the Minoans and the Hellenic Greeks who were the ones who were passing on these myths to us. So not only were they not only were they purposely changing them you know for their own PR purposes, but they probably didn't have the whole story anyway because uh, everything had been in such chaos for uh, easily three or four centuries that um probably by the time the myths made it to the Hellenic Greeks they were already pretty fragmentary, probably had multiple different conflicting versions. Um so it's it's uh it's a mess. Uh in terms of, of yeah, trying no, to figure out, you know, follow the threads back.
0: Well I, I mean not unlike the Bible. You know, they're writing about yes. Jesus, you know, hundreds of years later and um, so it, you know these things aren't written in real time um so all right, so we're talking that fifteen hundred years of of flourish and abundance um i you know it and again, I hope I'm not throwing you a curve here, but you're right, you know we do kind of mishmash everything into a ball and don't realize that different things are happening at different times um could you kind of just uh, to give us a sense of perspective that 1500 years what else might have been going on in the world or who else might have been a player on the world stage uh does anything come to mind that kind of gives us you know perspective what else was happening in the world at that time
1: okay so yeah um there's, there's a lot that went on in that era Actually um, the, um, the old kingdom Of Egypt um, The beginning of what we Think of as ancient Egypt With the, the um, Upper Egypt and lower Egypt being united That begins right Around 3000 BCE Right about the time when the Minoans Really come into their Own um, And so that um, that's the pyramid, right? That's, that's that um, era. And then, um, if you move on through uh, a few uh, a few centuries, um, you get some of the big names from Egyptian history. At the same time that the Minoans are trading all over um, all over the Eastern Mediterranean and building their big temple complexes. So you've got, like, Hatshepsut, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, Tutankhamun, all in that same era. Um, in fact, um, there have been a number of Minoan-style frescoes discovered um, at a site in the Nile Delta from that era. So um, there was a lot of cultural exchange going on. And um, the Minoans traded like crazy with the Egyptians because they were pretty close by. Um, let's see what else. Oh, the Minoans um, did their thing for so long that you go all the way through um, the Akkadian Empire and the Babylonian Empire in Mesopotamia while the Minoans are being Minoans. Um, Let's see. uh, And so, like in Mesopotamia, the Epic of Gilgamesh was composed during Minoan times. Wow. Wow. Uh oh uh Stonehenge Stonehenge was built during the early days the first round the first layers of Stonehenge were built um during uh early Minoan time wow. So that kind of we, uh, to have a
0: time, it, yeah to have a time machine hello huh, Laura if, I mean if they've Oh yeah if, uh, there yeah. was uh, <laughs> i i we we both wanna hitch a ride on that. I give our eye teeth too um yeah. okay we're gonna take a, another- another quick break uh and when we come back uh I, I, I know I said I wanted to talk about the bull jumping and the feather prints and the facetos disc uh disc. Uh, and I also want to ask you about if there's any holy days. So uh, we will be back and talk about that in just a second. Um, but before I um, share this clip from the trailer for Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, um, I do want to uh, to give a shout-out to listeners. Um, if any of you have been having problems connecting to the show – or staying connected to the show, please write me at uh, KarenTate108 at yahoo dot com. That's KarenTate108 at yahoo dot com. Um, I've had um, uh, some reports that uh, people are having some trouble listening live or staying connected live but yet they don't have that problem if they listen from the archives and I'm trying to get a sense of how prevalent that is to report it to blog talk if you're having difficulty because I don't want you to tune off of the show because of frustration Um, so if that's something that's happened to you please do let me know and again the email address is KarenTate108 at yahoo.com So, uh, as I said, uh, here's a clip from the trailer for Joe Carson's film, uh, Dancing with
4: Gaia.
3: Hello. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. An exploration of earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about henges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful and I was amazed... How it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage, It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com.
0: Dancing with Gaia is available only at dancingwithgaia.com. So I am talking to Laura Perry. She's back with us tonight. Uh, We're talking about the relevance of modern Minoan paganism for a better world. And, um, If uh, you're tuning in late, you'll want to play this show back because you've missed a lot of good stuff. Uh, But we're going to move on to, um, uh, well, we've talked about the different Minoan gods and goddesses. Um, But uh, before we totally leave that subject, um, Laura, is uh, there any gods or goddesses you want to make sure you mention because we haven't?
1: Um, well, all I really mentioned was the, the three mothers, Rhea, Posidia, and Thracia, who are at the top of the pantheon. I can just run through the list real quick. Um, most people are familiar with Ariadne and the Minotaur. Um, and the snake goddess is indeed one of our deities. Some people call her the serpent mother. Um, Dionysus um, and the Melissae, who are bee goddesses. Um, Let's see, who else have we got? Oh, who who is a midwife goddess who made her way into the Greek pantheon. Um, Minos, of course, the underworld judge of the dead. Um, and uh, the Minotaur actually has a counterpart. All of the horned gods, and goddesses in the modern Minoan pantheon come in pairs. So there's that egalitarian thing again. So there's the Minotaur and Europa. And then we have a moon goat god who is the counterpart to the goat goddess Amalfia with her cornucopia, the horn of plenty. Um, and then we have a moon stag god who is the counterpart to Martis who is the deer huntress goddess. So it's actually a pretty full pantheon. And that's, there are more, but, you know, those are the high spots.
0: Well, that uh, yeah, that sounds uh, pretty rich. Um, so uh, you know, we didn't really talk about uh kings and queens. Um, do we know if uh, Minoan Crete was led by uh men or women or both?
1: It appears to be both. Um we don't have hard evidence one way or the other. Um but there is essentially zero evidence that there was ever any kind of monarchy. Um, in spite of Sir Arthur Evans plastering various kinds of monarchic kinds of labels onto um, the buildings that he excavated. It turns out that the palaces are actually temple complexes, very similar to the temple complexes in Mesopotamia from the same time period. Um, And it looks like uh, the current best guess among the people who appear to know what they're talking about about these things is that the cities in ancient Crete were ruled independent of each other, and each one was probably ruled by a cohort of people, um, probably a combination of uh, clergy from the temple, both priests and priestesses, as well as probably some, uh, some lay people as well. So, I mean, it, it,
2: if I had to set up
1: a way to run a culture, I think that's probably a pretty reasonable one that would allow for everyone to live their lives uh, peaceably. So they do seem to okay. have done a pretty good job with that, yeah.
2: So, yeah, no so kings,
1: no
0: Kno- Okay. Um, so that mural that we see at Knosis, The mm-hmm. Feather Prince, um, do we have uh, any yeah. idea what that what, what he really represents? Okay. Well, the thing is, first of
1: all, it may not be a he. Okay. So, so here's the thing. Um, the picture that most people see, um, sometimes it's called the Feathered Prince, sometimes it's called the Prince of the Lilies. The people that most, the picture that most people see is a reconstruction that was done by Sir Arthur Evans art team, um, Emile Gillian and a bunch of other actually very talented artists, but they were really dedicated to um, helping Evans propagate his idea of what ancient Crete was like. And so they took a fair amount of liberty with reproducing, filling in the blanks. If you can find a photo of the fresco as it's actually displayed in the museum in Heraklion. you will see that it's very fragmentary um, most of the, the frescoes from Knossos we have no more than 30 to 40% of the pieces of the original so think about if you only had a third of the puzzle pieces and you're trying to put a puzzle back together and you don't know what the picture is supposed to look like So how likely are you to do it right? Okay, so one of the interesting conventions in Minoan art is that women are always shown as white. And by white, I don't mean Caucasian. I mean white like a sheet of paper. Um, And men are always shown as red. And um, this is not because the women stayed inside and never got suntanned. This is symbolic. It's the red and white pairing is a symbolism that even continues down to today Um, We have a fabulous professional dance ethnographer among our number who has um, taught us an awful lot about this kind of thing. And the red and the white um, show up even today in Mediterranean folk dances in Crete and surrounding areas, and they stand for the grain mother and her son.
3: Mm. And so
1: that tells us that the red and white, the white for the women and the red for the men, is in some way symbolic of the divine within humanity. Every woman is a reflection of the grandmother. Every man is a reflection of her son, her divine son. So um, if you look at the Prince of the Lilies, the original fresco pieces, the skin on those pieces is not red. It is white.
0: Ah. Uh. I see what you mean now. Okay, okay. well, that's, this is fascinating, Laura. Yeah. Yeah, this is fascinating. Um it, and you know, as many times as I've looked at those murals, uh I didn't realize the women were white and the men were red. I it, that just yeah. that uh, detail totally escaped me. So so what's the what's the real story on the bull jumping, do we know? Um well, it is quite possible that it actually
1: happened. I know a lot of archaeologists argue, oh, this is just a picture of a myth. This can't possibly have happened. Okay, I grew up on a farm. We had cattle. And I can tell you from personal experience that if they are used to being handled from the time they are young, cattle are pretty much giant dogs that moo. Um, you can train them. They're very trainable. Um, they're very friendly. Um, they uh, it, it would not... It would not be outside the realm of reason to consider that you could train cattle to do something that looked kind of like a circus act, yeah, and so
0: well i mean when 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 we yeah. were floating down the Nile on a Nile cruise, we saw kids playing with water buffalo, you know, oh, they yeah. were jumping on its back and um and uh even in uh Turkey. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, we saw when we were walking to a temple, uh, kids had adorned uh, cows with, you know, plastic jewelry, you know. Right. Um, so it, it 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 doesn't seem um, out of the ordinary to me either, you know.
1: Well, and I I can certainly see also a lot of people originally thought that they did the bull jumping in the courtyard of the temple complexes, but those courtyards aren't that big and they're paved with stone and um, cattle hooves would not be able to get a grip on that stone and they would just skid around. They wouldn't be able to do any kind of controlled movement at all. So yeah. the current the-, yeah. the current theory is that the bull jumping was probably done in um, wooden arenas that were Somewhere outside the temple complex, which would make sense because that's probably
2: you know you would do
1: that where the cattle were kept. You wouldn't necessarily want yeah. to be leading them into the temple complex. Um, I have my I have a personal theory that I will put out. This is not an official part of modern Minoan paganism. This is just my theory. I think the bull jumping was part of Dionysus's funeral games. Um, hmm. That. Those kinds of activities, funeral games for a deity, were very common uh, throughout the Bronze Age. This is something that people did as a way to um, not exactly celebrate, but but as a way to um, take part in the energy of the festival. Um, Dionysus has um, a a, a bull aspect, I guess you could call it, as Zagrus um the dismembered or torn one that's his uh his aspect as a uh, a world walker i don't like to use the term shaman because that's a, a different culture but um the the um the spirit walk of being torn to pieces and then being put back together again um is is a very common theme and So, um, at Dionysus' death, he would descend to the underworld. He was a psychopomp. Um, And so, to me, it makes perfect sense that an activity with bulls would take place, um, either at his funeral or at whatever festival they might have had when he returns from the underworld, um, one or the other. And and, And with the caveat that even if they were trained bulls, it would still have been a very dangerous activity. Because an animal that weighs a ton or more, even if it accidentally steps on your foot, is still going to break it. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's that's really intriguing. Uh, that's that's a really interesting thought. Um, uh, I, love I love it. I love it. I love talking to you, Laura. Um, so, um, all right. So oh, we, oh, we want to. Can I, can we I say write one up, more thing?
1: Uh, Sorry. Sure. Sorry, can yeah. I say please. one more thing very quickly? The next time you look at the yes. bull leaper fresco, notice the color of the skin of the people who are doing the bull leaping. The, the most okay. famous... Okay, are were they actually, red or red? There, th- there, were, there were actually several bull leaper um, frescoes in Knossos, but the most famous one has a blue background, and it has one male bull leaper and two female ones.
0: Ha. Huh. So it was a thing that the women and the men were doing.
1: Yes, they were all athletes.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I and, and you know your your theories uh I, it makes total sense. Um I I think my mind just um you know went to something traditional like maybe it uh, you know it was a spring rite or a fertility rite or something, but um you know your idea is much more interesting. <laughs> Well,
1: it's just a theory.
0: So yeah, no, no, but uh it, it's it's uh it's really interesting and it makes a lot of sense. So um let's um let's move on to uh the Faistos disc and the holy days, if you still have time. I know we're going over a little bit. Do you have a um a few more minutes to finish this out? Sure,
1: sure, no problem.
0: Okay, so let's start with the Fayston's disk. Um, speak a little bit about it. I know it's an, you know, it's an enigma. Uh, they've, uh, I, I think, um, interpreted uh, a few words, uh, some of which maybe say "mother goddess," um, but that's about all I know about it. Um, can you enlighten us a little bit more?
1: Well, it's a very interesting artifact. It's much smaller than most people think it is. It's about six inches in diameter. It would fit easily in your hand. Um, so, you know, it's, it's about the size of a giant cookie. And um, it is printed on both sides by um, having shapes stamped into the clay in a spiral. It's in a spiral on both sides. So someone went to a lot of trouble to carve all those stamps and, and stamped them in patterns into the clay, and they're patterns that look like writing of some sort, sort or another. Um, and then they fired the disc on purpose. So this is a purpose-made piece that was intended to be kept and used. Um, all of the, uh, All of the so-called translations and decipherments of it are very conjectural. Um, I will say this as someone who actually has done graduate work in comparative and historical linguistics. um, There is a major mathematical component to deciphering any kind of language or script, and there is a hard limit um, on decipherment, which is you need a certain amount of text, a minimum amount of text before you can do a decipherment, and anything else is just guessing, And unfortunately, because the Feistos disc is a unique single piece, there ain't enough text um, to do an actual decipherment. That said, um, someone spent hours and hours and hours and hours carving several dozen tiny little stamps in order to create that disc. And I will bet money that there's another one somewhere. Because no one is going to carve an entire set of tiny little stamps and only make one disc. You know that to me looks like some kind of production, right? So, so I'm, so, I'm holding so out language hope that we that, find more.
0: So the language that's on the disc, we haven't found that language anywhere else. Is is, is that what you um, what you said?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, some of the symbols on the Feistoff disk look very much like Linear A symbols. Linear A is the very unimaginative name for the script that the Minoans used to write their own language. It also has not yet been deciphered because there isn't enough text. We don't have enough of the tablets, but they're finding more all the time. They found one at CC uh, this summer. Um, And so eventually we are going to hit that minimum threshold of, of linear a text. And we should be able to decipher that once we hit that minimum threshold. Um, So we don't, we don't really know.
0: So was I wrong then Laura, when I said that they, they thought some of the words said mother goddess?
1: Um, It's a guess. That's, that's really okay. um we we really don't know because it looks it's its own thing, the disc is its own thing. The the figures and symbols on it some of them resemble some of the ones in linear A, but otherwise it's all its own thing and so we don't really know. Okay, um, okay, fair enough. It's an enigma.
0: All right. I would so love let's for it move to on to the holidays. Guys, but, uh, <laughs> Well, me too. When I heard that, I thought, that, okay, that's all I need to know. <laughs> um, well, we know that, they so have holy days. right. So. Right, yeah. So it would it would only make sense that their writing right. would uh, would be talking about the goddesses. So, right. um So, yeah. Um, so, holy days, would we be celebrating a Minoan holiday right now, along with Saturnalia and Solstice and Kwanzaa and Hanukkah and all the rest?
1: We would indeed, um, and we have actual hard evidence for this. This is not just wishful thinking. There are um, a lot of astronomical alignments in the Minoan temple complexes and peak sanctuaries, um, and so there are winter solstice alignments, um, including my most favorite one, um, at, in, the temple, in the temple complex at Knossos. Most people know about the throne room, right? It's the room with the Griffin frescoes and the central seat that looks kind of like a throne. Okay, if the front doors of that room are open on winter solstice morning and you are standing in the courtyard of Knossos in the dark, in the cold, on winter solstice morning, the sun rises behind you between the breast-like twin peaks of the sacred Mount Yukta and that first ray of sunlight, as the sun crests the horizon, shoots across the courtyard and into the throne room and illuminates that seat.
0: Wow. So that's intriguing. Um, it was that really a throne room? Um, why would why would it be aligned that way? Do we know?
1: Well, it's pretty clearly not a throne room um, it's way too small for any kind of pomp and circumstance um, you could maybe squeeze 18 or 20 people on the benches around that room if they really like each other really well um, but it's definitely not a show off kind of state room kind of thing I mean none of the spaces in any of the Minoan temples look like monarchy show off faces If that makes any sense. Um, yeah, yeah, the does. the yeah, the general consensus now is that the so-called throne room was actually a ritual room. Um, the uh, the seat itself was originally painted solid red, and the griffins that are on that fresco there, flanking the seat, and the palm trees, the red palm trees, which inexplicably disappeared when they uh, reconstructed the fresco, those tell us that the goddess being honored in that seat is the sun goddess. Those are her symbols. You read the iconography. Um, Just like if you're looking at uh, Egyptian, ancient Egyptian art, and you look at the headdress and you go, oh, well, this one has this thing on the headdress, therefore it's this deity. So you do the same thing um, with Minoan art. And the animals and plants that are flanking, that are paired on either side of um, a, a human-like form, tell you what the deity is.
0: And so, yes, so maybe gri- a priestess, a yeah. maybe a priestess embodying the mm-hmm. goddess, sat in that chair. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So, um did they were their holy days uh an agrarian wheel of the year thing that we would um you know, that we would recognize or a little bit different?
1: Well, I mean we would recognize them but they are kinda of different.
0: Um most
1: people have heard of like a Mediterranean climate, like a lot of uh Southern California has a Mediterranean climate. Um parts of Southern Africa and parts of Australia as well. But um, the interesting thing about a Mediterranean climate is that it doesn't really have the spring, summer, autumn, and winter that most of us are used to, those of us who live in the northern temperate zone anyway. Um, It really just has a rainy and a dry season. I had a friend who grew up in Southern California, and she used to say, we have two seasons, green and brown. And that's (laughs) true. and, And that's kind of the way the Mediterranean is. And so in the Mediterranean, the dead season is not winter, it's summer. So everything, the rain stops, everything gets crispy, dry, it's hot. Um, On Crete, a lot of the smaller creeks dry up entirely, especially uh, lower down, farther away from the mountains. Um, It's just, it's, it's dead, crispy, brown, and dry. And then in the autumn, the rain starts. And it's in the autumn in the Mediterranean that the farmers plant their crops. So it's like the opposite of what those of us in more northern areas are used to. So they plant in the Mediterranean, they plant their crops in the autumn. And because right. that's when the, ra- the rains come and the, um, the ground becomes soft enough to plow. And the winters are fairly mild. So your wheat and your vegetables and everything else, they grow through the winter and are harvested in the spring. So it's kind of, it's exactly backwards from from what a lot of us uh, are used to interestingly enough we have some um we have some members in uh, Australia and New Zealand who are thrilled at that backwardsness because it matches their um agricultural cycle directly so
0: yeah and you know and, and that would be perfect for people in southern california too uh
1: yeah you know give yes. them a
0: good excuse to um you know, finally align their, their climate with, uh, you know, with their spirituality. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Well, um, Laura, this has been fun. Um, I want to thank you for all this incredible information and, uh, just say kudos to you for, um, you know, doing this modern Minoan paganism thing. Um, I, I mean, it just sounds extraordinary and relevant and, uh, uh, what a wonderful thing, you know. What a wonderful way to revise paganism with these values. And, um, and you know, it, it just sounds rich, rich and fulfilling. And um, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, it sounds like a really cool thing you've got going on. I can see well, why it's so attracted thank you. so many people. I, I would just like uh, well, I will let you. It's,
1: it's not just me. It's a group effort. So just, just to be clear about that.
0: I I understand, I understand, and, uh, you know, and and credit to you for saying that. Uh, Well, as we wrap up tonight, I want to give you the last word here. Um, Is there anything you want to say that maybe I haven't thought to, uh, you know, to ask or, you know, to close with? Um, I would like to close uh,
1: the same way I close my Minoan Path blog posts and my workshops with. This is a benediction that Emily Dickinson wrote because she wasn't too keen on the ones that the old men taught her in church. And it goes like this. Okay. In the, na- in the name of the bee and of the butterfly and of the
0: breeze. Amen. Oh, that's lovely. I love it. Gives me goosebumps. <laughs> Well, Laura, um, congratulations on everything. I wish you well. You know, keep in touch, and uh, if anything comes up uh, that we can talk about on the show, please don't hesitate at all to uh, get in touch, and uh, we'll have another chat.
1: All right. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure.
0: Same here. And you and your family have a wonderful holiday.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, listeners, before, uh, before uh, bye bye, uh, before we hang up here, just a couple quick things. Um, I want to tell you about some upcoming shows uh, because you're actually going to have Voices of the Sacred Feminine on air uh, more often in 2020. Uh, First, let me tell you about some of the shows that uh, are scheduled in the coming weeks. Um, The day after Christmas, actually, there's going to be another show this week. Uh, We're going to have Goddess in the Bible. Yep. Yep. Uh, That is uh, December 26th, but it's going to be at 11 a.m., and that's just a reminder that um, uh, I am moving toward an 11 a.m. Pacific time slot rather than the 6 p.m. time slot. Um, I still do have some 6 o'clock shows scheduled, um, but... um, you know, we are shifting over to 11 a.m. Pacific. You can always catch us live or you can catch us from the archives. So uh, this Thursday, December 26th, uh, we've got Goddess in the Bible. Uh, then the following Monday, uh, again, the days are a little different because of the holidays. The following Monday, uh, I have Shelly Joy with me. We're going to be talking about Super Sensible Perceptions. Uh, then I am going to be doing a show myself uh, on the 2nd of January, Uh, and uh, it's titled Escaping the Wasteland. Um, If you read my blog, uh, you'll know a little bit about uh, what that's about, Um, so I'll just kind of dangle that carrot. Uh, The 8th of January, I have uh, Lynn um, uh, Picknett, and, uh, and Clive Prince with me, they're going to be talking about their new book out, uh, When God Had a Wife, um, The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine and the Judeo-Christian Tradition. Uh, some of you may know uh, something about that, but I'm sure they are going to give us a lot more information. Uh, The 15th of January, um, I am going to be talking to Sharon Robodeau about uh, uh, Daughters of Alcoholic Mothers. Um, You know, there are um, consequences for growing up with an alcoholic mother. Uh, We're going to talk about that. Uh, Then we have Love Activism on the 22nd of January. Uh, on the 29th of January, we have uh, Trista Hendren with us. The topic is How to Live Well Despite Capitalist Patriarchy. Uh, let's see, these are a little out of order, but um, in February, we have Luis Valdez uh, with me. We're going to talk about uh, the dangers of uh, dominionism and uh, Opus Dei in Christianity. Um then we also have David Hillman uh, The middle of February We're going to be talking about uh, Jesus, the ancient mystery cult And the love of God um, If you're an old listener You might recognize David's name He is uh, uh, quite an interesting character And uh, he translates his own Greek And I promise you This um, this interview is going to leave Your head popping And your hair uh, on fire um, so So, uh, you'll definitely want to mark the calendar for um, February 12th. Then, um, I have Patrick Rutherford with me on the 19th of February. We're going to be talking about the topic of Surviving Trump and Healing a Nation. Uh, and Amanda Scott uh, on the 5th of February is going to be calling in from the UK. We're going to be talking about warrior uh, women warriors through time. Uh, so a lot of good stuff coming up. Uh, I hope you will agree uh, with that and uh, and tune in. Uh, you can be sure you don't miss these shows by going to my show page on Blog Talk, uh, hitting the follow button, and that will um, make sure that each of these shows. Uh, will generate an email reminder that will go to your email inbox uh, so that you can just click on the link they provide uh, at your convenience and uh, that gets you right to the show uh, whenever you want to listen, uh, whether it be live or later on. Uh, it just makes it so much easier, and then you don't miss anything. And uh, don't forget, uh, there are a number of years of great stuff in the archives, so uh, please do uh, take a look there. Um, I, I can't even begin to tell you the wonderful foremothers and way showers women and men both uh who have kindly come on the show uh and shared their wisdom on how we can create a better world uh using values uh, of the feminine and finally uh i am considering in 2020 actually going on patreon and um uh, the reason I'm doing that is uh, I would like to uh, have the time and the support to work on a few projects besides continuing the radio show. Uh, I am looking into doing a book on abuse, uh, the tentative work, like, working title being uh, Walking Away, uh, Learning to Recognize Abuse and Setting Healthy Boundaries, uh, because I think we have normalized so much abuse in uh, our lives. and in this contemporary culture. I want to talk about that because sometimes I don't think we even see the abuse because we've normalized it so much. Uh, I know I certainly did in my life and also I am working on a, uh, goddess television series that, um, I hope to, uh, manifest out there in the world. And, uh, all of these things take time and effort and support. So if, um, Uh, If I do go ahead and join Patreon, I will let you know more about it, but I'm just uh, putting it out there. If any of you have experience with Patreon and would like to tell me uh yay or nay, it's a good idea or not, I am always happy uh to hear your input it's It's helpful. You can always reach me at Karen Tate one o eight at yahoo dot com uh and uh you know if if you have uh, been a fan of the show or of my books or Uh, My YouTube channel or newsletter or workshops, any of the stuff that I have been doing over the years, um, if if my work has been one of the wells that feeds you, uh, this will give you an opportunity, if you will, uh, to make small donations on a regular uh, basis. Uh, that help me continue to do uh, what I'm doing because I uh, I am retired now I am no longer working um, so this will help uh, produce uh, you know a small stream of income. All right, uh, well that about does it uh, for me tonight. Um, we are going to close the show. Uh, and give Laura Perry the last word. Uh, Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Have a wonderful holiday uh, these next few days here, and please uh, come back on the 26th to hear about uh, The Goddess in the Bible with Jeanette blonigan Clancy.
2: The Minoans of ancient Crete come to life in books and tarot by Laura Perry. Explore the sacred feminine in Labrys and Horns and Ariadne's Thread. Embrace your creative side with the Minoan Coloring Book and the Minoan Tarot. Discover all these and more at lauraperryauthor.com.
0: plus.